You're listening to A Quality Podcast with your hosts, John Thacker Jr. and Jake Harrell. But I would say the method you want is you want to be doing the, you know, the the sort of the, the iterative sprint type stuff early on when you don't know what to do. And so if you make mistakes, you can quickly recover that sort of thing. And then as you get into, okay, now I know what I'm going to, I'm going to build, or I know what the design is. And now I need to go out and get the equipment. I need to build the factory. I need to do, you know, do all these, all these sorts of things. I need to make it reliable. I need to do all that. That's when a phase gate, you know, more disciplined, linear march through the project um, becomes, becomes worthwhile. And so... podcast. I'm your host, John Thacker. With me today is co-host Jake Carroll and Mark Sneeringer. Mark is a continuous improvement consultant specializing in design for Six Sigma, particularly around new product introduction. Uh, Mark, why don't you say hi to everybody? Hello. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about what you're into now, how you got into consulting uh, in this design for Six Sigma. Um. Started out on the in Six Sigma and designed for Six Sigma back when GE did back in the uh, the mid '90s, and um, ended up um, doing a few roles there, starting from the research labs where we were uh, we were rolling out DFSS to the rest of the uh, rest of the corporation. So got involved heavily there. Spent three years then as the uh, design for Six Sigma and reliability leader for GE's appliance business before leaving to join Philips. In a, and at Philips had a number of, of um, continuous improvement roles plus project management roles or program management roles and ended up last role there before retiring was I was the continuous improvement leader for their healthcare division. So that's so starting sort of mid-90s, got involved in this stuff, uh, which was a shift from the engineering and uh, manufacturing type stuff I'd been doing before that. And it was um, was very interesting. Uh, and I, when DFSS got me excited, it was one of those things where it's good enough and people uh, appreciate it or use it enough that if a boss said you have to stop doing it, people would do it behind their back, right? Because they, it's it's useful useful methodology, so. Awesome, that's pretty cool. Uh, Jake, I see you've got your light stick going on. Why don't you say hi to everybody so we can see how cool your studio looks today. Oh, oh are you enjoying the light stick now? There you go. Yeah, I, I thought he was making. Uh, I thought he was building lightsabers. Okay, sorry. If you didn't know, Mark, uh, John, how I got Mark to fall into our lap was his snarky LinkedIn commentary. I'm like this guy gets along with us, like a speaking the same language because we kind of do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, good, Mark. Welcome to the show. And today we wanted to talk a little bit about risk management, particularly because maybe it's not done so well these days. Um, so why don't we give folks a little bit of an outline, you know, particularly around like new product introduction. Talk to me about sort of what risk management is, what it looks like, you know, what we mean when we're talking about that. Okay. So, so a risk is something that could go wrong, right? And then risk management is how you deal with, with that, either in terms of, of trying to avoid it trying to move it to somebody else, uh, trying to mitigate it, or, or even say, hey, I'm going to accept that risk and just, uh, and just run with it. Um, so, so risk management then gets into the mainly into that, the mitigation piece of it, where you're saying, you know, how probable is this? How big an impact is it going to have if it did happen? And then what can I do about it to keep it from happening? You know, so reduce that probability of the occurrence. 
uh, of the of the issue. That's that's the main kind of risk management. We'll talk. I'll talk a little bit later about a um, about a, a different flavor of it that get, that gets useful when you're doing say new product ideation. You know, in the discovery or or function development phase. But that's basically it. Bad things can happen. This is trying to avoid them from to make them you know, keep them from happening. I got. I have to preface my uh, bias here is every risk management structure strategy I've been a part of just honestly sucked. Like it didn't create any value for the op and for the people doing it, touching it. So I'm interested in one mark. How do you make that valuable for the folks trying to bring a new product online? So you you usually recognize the value when the something you should have dealt with goes wrong. I mean, I've I've had. And or you've you've started to do something about it, but you didn't follow through. So I've I've had situations where all of a sudden you'll have a field failure problem on a product, and you go back and you look at your failure mode effects analysis, your FMEA, and sure enough, it's in there. But the mitigate, but there's no mitigation attached to it, or the mitigation is basically just, hey, we rationalized that we had done something about this, even though we hadn't. So we could get the check mark and move on, and so so you learn the value of doing it generally by failing. It's the um, it's the old quote, you know, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. So, yeah. So, are there a handful of uh, risks that um, you know you've seen as fairly common when it comes to new product introduction? Uh, there's, there's categories. So things like, um, there's things like resources, you know, will you have the resources you need when you need them? You know, so this is a, this is built around the project itself. Um, cost, is this thing going to cost what we think it's going to cost or, or, or is there something that could make it cost a lot more that we could do something about to, uh, to deal with? So, so it's more around the categories more than saying, oh yeah, you always, you always see this one. Um, but there are there are some fair, you know com some common things that you want to look for uh, as you go as you go about it, and it's mainly things. What could throw our timing off? You know, is there a piece of equipment that we're going to need that we don't know how you know how easily it is to get it? You know, those sorts of things. Those the, 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 yeah, more categories than individual questions at that point. Yeah. So if you look at your Gantt chart or whatever tool you know we're using for the project, the uh, timing affects a lot of other stuff too, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it affects cost, obviously. Um, like you said, if you're getting tooling um, and it's not there, you know, that delays the rest of the project. Um, I outfitted a factory uh, a year or so ago, um, and the tooling was coming from Italy and China. And this was, you know, COVID times. Um, so it ended up pushing back the implementation, you know, many months, uh, six or eight months, um, particularly the Italian machines. Mm -hmm. You know, just the, the, the way that the government was changing the rules as they went along um, affected that. And then they had the same risk at their level, like in miniature. So we had the machines that they were building for us and they had to be outfitted with you know us electrics and their supplier for that couldn't get them their stuff to finish the machine mm -hmm. so they could send it to us you know cascade effect uh, so that makes a lot of sense yep so did you guys have any sort of mitigation in place that or or contingency in place for this or did you just say oh gosh we're gonna we're gonna accept this and and be late we really just accepted it because it was a greenfield. You know, there was mm -hmm. nothing else going on in this building. Um, we were using it as a transportation hub, you know, in the meantime. Um, mm -hmm. So supplying supplying it with product from a different plant and, and then transferring it like final mile delivery uh, type of thing. Um, so we were utilizing the property for that, but we just had to wait. Okay. Yeah, that's sometimes those are, are are difficult to overcome. But there's you know there's you know 
when you look at this and say, this is a critical piece of equipment, if it's late, the whole thing's gonna be late. Um, you know, you can say, okay, are there, you know, mitigation might be, hey, if we lose two months there, is there some place further down the, the track where we can make up those two months, you know, and that, and so start the actions now to be able to make up those two months, or is there some place else we can get this piece of equipment, you know, or can we build by hand until the equipment's available, you know, they, they, those sorts of things are, are the sorts of stuff that you, you sort of push teams on to say, all right, if you're going to have a problem, what could you do about it, either in terms of setting up a contingency plan or um, or figuring out how to fix the problem faster, or you know prop up prop it up before it falls over, sort of thing. So, I think a, yeah. a common one I see in institution, of course, these are W two jobs in life, but is resources is the risk number one where we don't want to give the right amount of people, expertise, time to actually do the thing we set out to do. So everybody's yeah. aligned with the goal, but nobody's aligned with assigning the right amount of resources. So like, how do yeah. you approach that, Mark? And so, what you do so, in your daily life? so getting the right amount of resources and stuff like that is, 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 a, is a big piece of project management. And I find good project managers are fairly rare. You know, people that can sit down, do a work breakdown structure, figure out what sort of resources they need, then go, you know, take all that data to the leadership and say, this is what I need, you know, and and the, and if you give me less, here's what it's going to do. Where I find the risk is when you say, all right, in that plan, I'm going to need expert XYZ at this point, Right. And they're just not available, you know. And, and the the probability of them being available is is low enough that that says, okay, that's one I want to mitigate in terms of the resources. I either want to find somebody else that can do it. I want to build their time to be as as efficient as possible, you know, some some something like that to uh, to help, you know, help overcome that lack of resource or the timing of that resource. Yeah, but you're right. Resource resources, both in terms of people, materials, uh, equipment. Those those are those are, you know, in a in a project. Those are big risks. John, do you see that as constraint numero uno in most of your improvement projects? Yeah, um, it's not always a constraint, uh, but it is often um, a challenge, you know, like overlooked, not. Uh, considered really to the level it should be and kind of piggybacking off of what Mark, Mark what you were saying was um, I've worked with a lot of project managers that were good at like work breakdown structures and figuring out needed work you know needed resources to get the work done um, they weren't very good at communicating that to management and I've worked with other project managers that were you know very good at communicating with senior management, but they didn't have the data to back up what they were asking for kind of thing. And mm -hmm. sort of finding those two skills together, um, it has been rare just in my experience. Yeah, so. yeah. good. As I said, good project managers are uh, are definitely rare. And uh, when you find one, hang on to them. So. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Jake yeah. wouldn't know anything about that. Um, so... <laughs> So going back to risk management, um, tell me a little bit more about that. We we mentioned like, you know, sometimes it's it's not done very effectively. What are your thoughts around that? So so one of the things I see is people get wrapped up in discussions of what's possible, you know, what things are possible to go wrong, right? And never never segue over to what's the probability? So what are the most probable things that are going to go wrong? Or what's the impact if they do? So people get, you know, they'll get all all riled up about, oh my gosh, you know, this this thing could fail in so many, you know, in this way. But but if you sit there and you say, yeah, but the probability of that is 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 really low, why do you want to spend energy on that? So that's one of the things is that they never get beyond sort of what their their fears are about about doing it. So that's one. The other is um, that this risk assessment, risk management 
is often seen as a checkbox exercise by a team. You know, there's a deliverable of an FMEA at, at, at this point. So we'll, we'll go through, we'll write it up, we're done, right? Don't really follow up with the mitigations, even if they, one, sometimes they don't plan the mitigations, two, if they plan them, but they don't follow through on them. So there isn't a follow through after that initial assessment. So those are two two main ones, and then the other one that I've run into more in the um, in like the medical device world, where thing you know in the reg highly regulated world, is people confusing risk management around the product or around the project with the risk management that's driven by regulatory stuff. So if you say, all right, you know that risk management is about how could this product hurt somebody. Right. Or how could this product, you know, fail to do what it's what it's uh, what it's designed to do. And and at that point, once again, that that that's, a, you know, once they say, OK, we're not going to hurt somebody. They say, yeah, we did risk. We did a risk assessment. We did risk management. And they didn't they didn't look anything at anything about execution or even even with product, you know, failure modes that aren't going to hurt someone. So, so those were some of the things that I see as, you know, stopping people from being effective at this. So. Let me just ask the expert, how do you separate my irrational fear of what could go wrong from what could reasonably go wrong? Because that's what I see time and time again when this conversation comes up is what are my personal irrational fears getting projected into this project and not necessarily what makes sense or is reasonable? So. Data is one, or you know, that's one thing. If say, you know, if you say, "Hey, you know, I'm my big worry is I'm sitting here 40 miles from Mount Rainier, and it's going to explode, right? And it's going to wipe out our factory in the process, or or that sort of thing." And you sit there and say, okay, "Okay, let's look at how often Mount Rainier has exploded, you know, over over geologic time." And yeah, there's a probability of that happening, but it's really, really slight. So if your irrational fear is volcanoes erupting, you can go look at how many volcanoes erupt in your neighborhood on a, you know, and say, okay, is that something I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna try to mitigate. So, uh, you know, you might, you know, you could be worried about that. And at the same time, not be worried about the fact that, you know, your area has power outages pretty often. And what do you have in terms of backup generators and things like that, rather than uh, worrying about, you know, a natural disaster that's going to take out, you know, a fair amount of the suburbs of Seattle when it happens. So. Or the exurbs, the towns that are sitting on the, the, the flanks of the volcano. So. John and I had a, a thought experiment we were giving each other once, in which I asked him, all right, you're the CEO of a company. And I'm asking you to manage this company without the use of data. How would you do it? And John said, I wouldn't. <laughs> what do you I think I would agree with John on that one. Yeah. 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 You, you, yeah, you're not going to get very far just on your gut feel. So, so yeah, data is probably the, the main one. The other one is, is just, you know, talking through some of these irrational fears to say, all right, what is it, um, you know, why why do you think that's going to happen? And then maybe get down to something that's, you know, treated almost like problem solving, where you get down to a root cause that you can address. You know, that may be, that may be a way to look at it. So. Yeah, and sometimes the uh, stakeholders that are sort of involved uh, don't understand that their fears are irrational or... Uh, mm -hmm maybe have a low probability. Um, but I've also seen that other, the other direction, you know, where uh, risks that on the significant scale, you know, are higher than a three, let's say, um, mm -hmm. but they're ignored and their, their probability is high as well. Yeah. Um, sometimes yeah. it's like, we've always done it that way, you know, like I, it's conditioning. You know, this, this kind of failure happens all the time. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the reasons why the assessment and this planning is is a team activity and not an individual thing. You know, so you want to you want and and 
a team that's willing to, um, you know, maybe take on that st stakeholder that's, uh, you know, that's, that gets noisy about, you know, about a particular risk or the lack or a, or ignoring a particular risk. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a team sport. It's not, it's not individual. Can I ask that you have the Declaration of Independence? Well, it looks like the back of it on your framed on your wall behind you. What no, no, that's there? actually a map of Ireland. <laughs> I lived in Ireland for a couple of years, so uh, we my wife found that while we were living over there. It's an 1850s or 60s map of Ireland. So, Edinburgh. You know why they used maps back then instead of globes? Uh, they because thought the, the earth, earth was, was flat. flat. No, <laughs> exactly. That, that's why. No, no. Well, there, there there's the globe. <laughs> well, it's a lot easier to keep a map in your pocket than a globe. We'll just say. Yes. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, risk management, um, you know, sometimes it's ineffective. And then, you know, new product introduction, right? I know that you're involved heavily in that. So mm -hmm. how does um i guess the flavor of risk management like how does it change or evolve a little bit as you go from just regular risk management to new product introduction so so we there's there was a um there's a few of us that we did a um, a webinar on this uh, a while back where it was our the point that we were trying to make on it was that when you're going from say your fuzzy idea to a product you, there's actually two stages in that. One is function development, where you're mm -hmm. you're getting to a feasible design, and then the second stage is actually the product development or the product realization. And and the way you manage that, um, and this is you know you hear the big fight about uh, sprint, you know agile sprints versus waterfall. The way you manage that is use sprints in the beginning to get through and get to that feasible design, and then use waterfall in the back end because that's where you want flawless execution to get to the um, to get to the actual product so if you make that split say sprint split beginning uh, phase gate or waterfall in the, in the back in the front end the risks that you're dealing with are things you just don't know so so if you say you're making a bunch of assumptions as you go in and so the whole thing there on risk management is changing those assumptions into knowledge so what are the activities i'm going to do to to change you know to change that unknown or that assumption into something into knowledge and you connect what one of the metrics on this is actually the ratio of assumptions to uh to knowledge and so, so that's the front end. In the back end, once you get into now, I've got an idea or I've got the pro the design, and I need to execute on it. That's where sort of the classic thing that that's you know failure mode effects analysis or project risk management comes in, where it's probability, impact, how well can I see this thing coming before it hits me, and coming up with a um, with plans for the things that are high probable, high impact low 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 visibility now you're gonna you're gonna hurt a bunch of fundamentalist feelings when you said sprint to your first waterfall <laughs> and there's people on the internet every day i fight They're like no you just need to operate in sprints no you just need a scaled agile methodology I'm like stop so 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 i i've i've got a guy i used to work with at phillips who's you know, heavily into the scaled agile stuff and everything like that. And one of the one of the things he talks about is that's a very resource intense methodology. And it's and so you say, yeah, you want to you if you want to go that direction, then you've got to commit to having all the different layers of of stuff. And I guess I found in my experience that the the waterfall or the phase gate stuff works very well. Uh, works well across all of it, but you know, in this this more you know, talking with these other guys that was that were involved in the webinar, it's like yeah, the the sort of the free flowing ideas, that sort of stuff that you can get in a sprint a sprint situation um, works works better in the in this in the foundation, you know, when or when you're building building the function function of the of the product. 
in the early stages, the, you know, the ideation, the gathering, the voice of the customer, that sort of stuff. I might, I might offend yeah. some lean community aficionados listening today, but I'm just going to say it. Just pick a damn structure and stick to it. I don't even care if it's the same structure as mine. If you like, oh, I'm a waterfall agilist. No, I'm an agile waterfallist. Stop. <laughs> like, just pick no, a but, structure but, and stick to it. But I think, uh, I think what I took away from that, though, um, the, I, the process that you're in the middle of executing uh, has characteristics that change as you go along. And that may require the use of different tools. And I think this kind of relates to, you know, not just new product introduction. And I want to talk about some unique risks there in a minute, but you're just running a, a whatever, a distribution facility for Amazon or something like that. Um, these large companies, they come in and they sort of make a whole cloth copy of something they're already doing. The other 99%, they start out in the back of somebody's garage, right? And then they build up. And folks that aren't experienced, I think, with lean methodology as an example, they try to apply like all the tools in the same way to the garage that they do to the Amazon warehouse. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And in fact, yeah. like yeah. your selection of tool methodology should be driven by the, the needs of what you're actually doing. Fair? Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. And so, so you know, Jake, you're saying pick a method and stay with it. I would say yes, you know, stay with it. But I would say the method you want is you want to be doing the, you know, the the sort of the the iterative sprint type stuff early on when you don't know what to do. And so, if you make mistakes, you can quickly recover and that sort of thing. And then, as you get into okay, now I know what I'm gonna I'm gonna build, or I know what the design is, and now I need to go out and get the equipment. I need to build the factory. I need to do you know do all these all these sorts of things. I need to make it reliable. I need to do all that. That's when a phase gate, you know, more disciplined, linear march through the project uh, becomes becomes worthwhile. And so I would say, yeah, pick that and stay with it. Don't say halfway, you know, the there's a point where you say, okay, we're going to switch, you know, switch cars from sprint to uh phase gate, but you can do that, you know, and uh, and and it will I I think I think this is this is the way to for things to go forward in new product development. So it's 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 making both of those camps somewhat unhappy. So with new product introduction, um, there's some um, special risks, right? And I'm thinking particularly the way that uh, operations have to interface with work with marketing, right, and sales. So, you know, there's many projects where the outcome of the project doesn't affect like I just bought three billion dollars worth of TV ad space on this thing, right? It has to be available mm -hmm. to go to market at this time, right? Um, can you talk through like a couple of really just the impact of that particular like the customer facing side? Um, I mean that's that affects, that's like, that's why a good a good you know, new product development process, and and I'll I'll talk waterfall here or phase gate. That's why it's a it's a cross functional operation. I mean, you've got a core team that's probably you know the the technical project manager, somebody from manufacturing, somebody from marketing, somebody from you know somebody from supplier, you know from uh, supply chain, that sort of stuff, and those folks have to get get working together early, very early, so that, you know, if you've got your, hey, I've, I've spent this big bucket of money on advertising space at Christmas, then, okay, you've got to, you've got to take that into account as you're laying out the plan to say, I've got to be in the store or, you know, available to be in the store in late August, you know, because that's when the folks like Walmart and folks like that pick, you know, set their, uh, their Christmas lineup. So, uh, so, so yeah, so it's, it's, that's, that you deal with by it being a full contact cross-functional um, methodology of, of doing your new product development. It's not a bunch of 
you know, scientists hanging out in the lab and then throwing something over the wall to the manufacturing guys who eventually tell the marketing guys what's going on. So, Yeah, and I like how you brought out the retail cycle there because it uh, highlights there's exterior factors that you have to take into, into yeah. account, right? Um, with medical devices, we talked about, you know, there's federal regulation uh, that you have to meet. Um, that applies, you know, to, to other sectors, but things like cars and needles, you know, have a, a much higher level of uh, requirement and scrutiny. But then you also have retail cycle. And the retail cycle is uh, also kind of driven by consumer habits and behavior. Um, and then you have these like industry cycles. So you probably noticed in um, cell phones, for example, it's now like there's going to be a new model every year, but it's like every third year is like the, oh, wow, new model. Mm -hmm. And with cars, you know, a model has a 10-year life cycle with a like a mid-cycle refresh type of thing. Um, so these are all factors that I think, you know, effective risk management kind of has to take into account, right? Yeah. And, and, and once again, it's, it's, you know, it goes beyond risk management from the standpoint of some of that's good project management. Some of it is good portfolio management. You know, so having a multi-generation product plan that says, okay, new platform car comes out this year. Two years from now, we'll be adding these features to it. Two more years after that, those features will be added. Two more years after that, new platform. You know, that that sort, you know, so that you have that, that sort of long-term planning. Um, and long-term depends on your industry. So if you're in cell phones, long-term is, I'm going to have four models in, in, you know, in less than four years. Or if you're doing, um, you know, MRIs, I'm going to have four models over the next 20 years, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it's, it depends on your industry, what that cycle is. And uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's more in the planning type of stuff rather than, than in, okay, I'm in the project and now I need to understand and handle the risks that I'm, uh, I'm dealing with. John, has there been a game-changing car in the last decade? Um, I think you could probably, you know, call it the Tesla that. I think it's less than a 10 years old Model S. Um, you know, we'll probably, like historians will probably look back at this time and say that, you know, Tesla changed the game. Um, but that's the only yeah, one I mean, that really comes you to know, mind. You, you put a completely different drivetrain in what than what was there 20 years ago. And back on back on the risk management stuff, um, you guys you guys work with uh, like failure modes and effects analysis FMEA at all? All the time. You used it. Oh yeah, all the time. What what do you what what upsets you about or what do you worry about? Well, um, to jump off. I remember working at a um, distribution center for tier one automotive, and we had an FMEA. Um, I think the kind of the two biggest concerns I had about it, one, it was on like a document sharing platform, you know, think like a standard shared drive, um, except, you know, controlled access for, for write. Um, so it was not easily accessible. Mm -hmm. And second, the kind of language like in the, the mitigation part uh, was also not very accessible, kind of engineering E. And mm -hmm. last but not least, uh, I think we reviewed it once a year. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of felt like it was something they did because the operating system said I had to have it, um, but it didn't seem like it was a living tool that you know was really used. Yeah, AS ninety one hundred environment, the last one I touched or was a part of, small aircraft materials being kitted over to you know build airplanes just in time, and almost exactly what John said. It was a thing that was like it's a tick in the box so I can get past the rest of my AS ninety one hundred certification. 
application. It's not something anyone used to drive any real value to the site. Now, I have had the extreme opposite where in a distribution center of mine, there was a really well detailed what the possible failure modes could be. And someone had directly correlated them with who was getting fired or disciplined for when they happened. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my God, you acknowledge, as a human being, you acknowledge that the system will produce this outcome with a certain probability and you built in who to irrationally hold accountable for it, which just, it just summarizes my career in such a beautiful way. Yeah, it's, it sort of violates fix the problem, not the blame. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so, so what I found on, on FMEA is difficult to start. In other words, if you don't have one, say on a product or on a process, building it does take time, right? The advantage though then is once you have it is, is you know, it is update, updating it. It's the question is, well, what's changed since the last time we looked at it? Um, annual updates, that's, you know, that's fairly common and it probably is something that, you know, there should be some sort of a periodic check to say, is this still the same? But where I found it most useful is when say a new, you know, say on a product FMEA, um, you get surprised by something in the field. You know, all of a sudden you're, you're failing by, you know, a new failure mode or a different failure mode is to immediately go back and add that failure mode to the FMEA, right? And so that so that make it more of a living document than a uh, than something that sits on the shelf for, you know, 360 days a year and then gets pulled down for five to uh, to update it, you know, that sort of thing. So that's that's one thing. The other on process FMEA, there was a group that I worked with or I knew, you know, knew the guys in it when I was in GE that actually had a couple graybeards or a few graybeards sat down with like three years worth of field failure data, related everything that they could from there back into process, you know, process defects and came up with a list of 13 questions of which they used to do a process FMEA. In other words, it wasn't just start with a blank sheet of paper. It's you run through these 13 questions. So they took something that was a two-day exercise for their business down to a half a day. So there was a time savings in doing it. Plus it got, it, it actually got more accurate. So as they went further along, you know, in time, they found that, you know, this, this was a better predictor of what the issues they would see and, and, and therefore drive the mitigations. So there's, so yeah, it's, that's one of the pathologies is it's, you know, this is something, it's a checkbox exercise. I've got to do it or other, otherwise I won't get through the gate or I won't get my uh, certification, you know, uh, as a factory or something like that. So it's, 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 it's probably, you know, it is a problem to get it to be a living document with folks, but once you do, it, it, uh, it does add value. Yeah, the, one of the, the most critical points and kind of like my, my standard operating procedure meeting with a business is what does their communication cadence look like? If it's daily, that's the most ideal. And then just engineer your failure modes into that daily discussion. Either we're learning about a new thing we didn't know could go wrong before, or we're revisiting things we already knew could go wrong so we can actually solve them. And I found yeah. that's like one of the fastest ways to learn how to actually like manage your business. And it's surprising to yeah. me every time I engage with a business that's never done that before. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree with you. Daily management is where a lot of this stuff will come up, you know, especially in a process, you'll start, you know, you're, if you're tracking things and hey, you know, this bar on the Pareto has gotten bigger, you know, let's, let's, let's pull up the, F the process FMEA and see, is it in there? And if it is, what'd we say we were going to do about it? And if it's not in there, then let's get the, you know, get the countermeasure or get the, the, the mitigation in place so that we, uh, we can deal with it. So, uh, so yeah, it's, 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 it's using things like daily management or those, or that the data collection that you're doing to inform it and to, uh, to drive, drive updates to it. That'll make it more useful. Yeah, I've also seen a gap between um, 
tools, tool use here related to like scalability. Um, mm -hmm. So most of the FMEAs that um, you know I'm, I'm familiar with, uh, they sort of deal with things like a hurricane, right? You know, real. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's a real risk, and we have to have a backup plan. You know, how do we get our data? Um, are we going to run a paper operation? Um, do we have some other means of continuing mm -hmm. production? What about safety of employees? You know, all of that stuff. So great, a, a real risk and, and something that you have to, to plan for. Um, but then the, like, regularly repeated smaller risks that are part of just doing business every day are kind of left out and absorbed just in your daily, like your tier meeting structure, right? Where you have, okay, you know, here's our control chart. We're here. So what's the countermeasure, right? Mm -hmm. and, but nobody ever takes that chart and says, okay, you know, this particular failure mode happens at this sort of frequency with uh, whatever the outcome is to the business. Um, and sort of captures that anywhere. And I get that, you know, like that's a lot of work. I get it. Um, but what are your thoughts there? Like, I, the, the it, if you get, if you've got an FMEA already, you know, if you've got the process FMEA there and, and this comes up and, you know, it's, it's not a, a lot of work to turn to somebody, usually the engineer that's there in your day that, you know, watching this and go, could you go check the FMEA and see if it's in there? And if it's not, let's let's get it in there so that we have that we know this in the future. That if it comes up again, we know what we you know we know what we want to do about it. You know because because what I've seen what I've seen happen is the problem will come up. It'll get put you know it'll get it'll get addressed. Countermeasure will go in play, place. For some reason, it comes up again later, and it's a it's a the, the, the memory of what was done the last time is gone. And so how do you, you know, how do you, uh, you know, people are spending energy solving a problem they've solved before. So it's, so I think there's some, some value there from the, uh, from it. But the, the, the main reason you're doing it is so that you can predict things that might happen, you know, have a probability of happening and do something about them before they do cause you a big problem. So yes, yeah, so big problem, you know, it'll focus more on bigger things like, you know, all of a sudden we can't get this raw material or the, um, you know, the, 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 we operate in a very narrow band on this specification and all of a sudden we're outside that band, you know, and then all, then we don't, you know, we don't make any good stuff. So I think you'll see that more than, hey, I'm losing one or two today on the, to this thing. Uh, what's my, my mitigation or what's my countermeasure to do that, to deal with that? Yeah, and sometimes, you know, like capturing capturing countermeasures for uh, failure modes that happen repeatedly, right? Mm -hmm. um, there can be like a best practice. Now, there's not always, and sometimes the stated best practice is too abstract uh, to, to really mean anything. For example, uh, shifting labor. Well, that depends on which department is busy and stuff like that. You know, that that's just a just do it for management. Um, but at other times, there might be a specific protocol. And I'm thinking of one specific instance of a plant I was working with. Uh, they had a discard that was collected daily, and it was quite a bit. And they had to have a failure mode for uh, the discard collection company not showing up. Right mm -hmm. now, it, that wasn't on the PFMEA, um, and it wasn't captured in the the daily management because it hadn't happened yet. But when it did happen, it almost shut the plant down. That's how much waste they generated. Um, mm. Which you know, it it was almost all going to recycling plants, but it was a lot of waste. Right. So we had like the back of the building just filled with trash. Right, filled with discard. Um, well, that's, so this is that's, this is off spec product, or is this just the uh, the the materials that go, that are used to make the product, but don't end up in the product? It was mostly cardboard due to repackaging to customer okay. spec. 
Yeah, my, my uh, very first business out of school was working in GE's diamond business. And we used to talk about that our raw materials came in in 18 wheelers and our product went out in armored cars. So, right. uh, yeah, there was a lot of discard. I mean, a lot of right. stuff didn't make it into the product, but yeah. a fair amount of the carbon did. So. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Well, so. But, uh, yeah. That yeah. Really so, so that, yeah, that would be something that would say, or, you know, that you would, you would put into a process FMEA is, you know, we've got a stream of waste here and we'd have this sort of capability or capability to store it. What happens when, when we, we can't shift it before, before that storage, you know, facility is full. So. Um, the countermeasure can be yeah. specific in that case, because yeah. you're going to have to, have a corporate contract with a different supplier in the event that this waste collection company, you know, can't get the work done. Um, so as I work with companies, you know, kind of on their risk management, one of the things that uh, we look at is uh, corporate governance, you know, and, and policy. Um, if you have to solve a problem by spending money, a lot of companies have rules around that. And mm -hmm. that's when like this needs to be documented. Uh, I actually got in trouble because I just called somebody and gave them my credit card that I need this bill. Um, <clears throat> so I got a little slap on the wrist and like, well, you have a choice. I can shut down the plant or, you know, Mr. So-and-so that got his panties in a wad in accounting can figure out my credit card bill. But <laughs> so see, see, I, I would have thought if, if Jake had that problem, it probably would have been just haul it out in the backyard and burn it. <laughs> Hell Yeah. <laughs> Get a nice, get a nice bonfire going, right? Mm -hmm. So, anyways, so there's there's one other one other thing that, um, and this was another uh, webinar we did actually about a year ago uh, uh, on rational risk taking. So, sort of the opposite of of or not really the opposite of of risk mitigation, but it's the I'm going to accept the risk. I'm going to accept the risk and live with it. And, or, I'll, or I'll take on a risk because I get an advantage out of it. So, so think about like a, a luxury, you know, luxury product company. A risk they'll take on is product cost. You know, they'll they'll put more into the product cost because the the benefit is they can sell sell it at a high price because of their that's their business. Or if you if you're somebody that's you know I want to be first to market. You're going to be willing to 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 launch with bugs in the product, which somebody who said I've got a you know a, an extreme quality reputation is going to you know miss the timing of a launch in order to get the uh, you know so so it's it's taking you know understanding your risk appetite is a um, is something when I've talked to people about this their first you know their first thoughts are risk mitigation. Right? How do I how do I deal with these risks? And the answer and and really what it is is what risk are you willing to take? You know to get something you want for your business. Uh, you know so so like if you want to speed up your, you know and well actually a great example of most of the things that are on the list is COVID vaccine development. Right? They were building factories before they knew they knew what they were uh, they were going to have. So you know they were overlapping things that normally didn't overlap in the schedule. Um, they, um, they made decisions on less data than they normally would have, you know, all, all these sorts of things. And, you know, so they were taking these risks with the reward being getting a vaccine a year or two faster than they would have otherwise. And so, so that's that, the, the concept of risk, risk, you know, rational risk taking is is one that's that's a bit fun to think about and 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 is in a business say, you know, how can I speed this up or how can I get something I want by doing something I wouldn't normally do? Any general? Yeah, I like that. Uh, oh. I like that concept because in you know business school, one of the things they teach is you know business management is a series of placing bets and a lot of you know business management education is about how to make good bets um, mm -hmm. and i think sometimes you know it, it 
varies from person to person and personality to personality and what role you have in the company. You know, I want my quality manager, for example, to raise a stink about everything because, you know, that's her job or whatever. Um, but big picture for business managers, um, you know, it's not always about minimizing risk. It's really about, you know, assessing risk to reward um, and making a decision based on uh, calculus that's always changing based on market factors, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and but it it also you know having an understanding of what you will risk, you know what your appetite is and where that appetite is, is will guide some of that. So if you you know if you're in a medical device situation, you're going to be less likely to do say I'm going to put a product out there with bugs, right? And I'll deal right. with the bugs later because I want to be the first to market. You know, I want to, yep. you know, now there, there you might do say, I want to be first to market, but I will take on ridiculous levels of cost. You know, so like the first digital x-ray detectors that went out there had about a 5% yield, right? And so they were making, starting 20 to get one, right? Um, but they got digital x-ray out there and and wiped out you know and, and were the first ones to do it and and you know took a sizable chunk of the market when they did so um so you know there's it's what's what's your what's your appetite so um yeah so that's yeah there's a bunch of bunch of different things and um it reminds me that when i was in the appliance business one of our um product line managers had two signs hanging in his cubicle. We all had cubicles, nobody had offices. Um, one was perfect is the enemy of good. And the other is um, in every project, there comes a time when you need to shoot the engineers and launch the product. <laughs> uh, straight out of Dilbert, huh? But you yeah. know, but the, I used to, you know, I'd bridle a bit on this perfect is the enemy of the good. But then, you know, I've, I've, I've learned that yeah, this is, um, yeah, you, it, there's a re customer has some requirements. When you meet those requirements, get the thing out there, you know, don't, don't sit around and try to make it the, the, the best, you know, the perfect product before you're out there. So any general words of wisdom to folks listening who might have their own business, might be a, a, an officer within a business on what their general approach to risk management structure should look like? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say separated into two things. One is on the one side, it's the product and the process. And there, a tool like FME or a, the tool FMEA is a good tool, right? In terms of, of, of assessing, you know, building up your risk, your, your risk profile there. On the other side is project risk or, or execution risk. And that it's it's a simpler process of you know what's the what's the probability high medium low you know don't take it any more more rigorous than that what's the impact high medium low and then address the high highs and the high mediums and let the low lows and the low mediums uh, alone until you have time to get to them or if you have time to get to them so keep it simple on that side of the house when you're when you're saying I'm you know I want to you know I want to build a new factory or I want to uh, I want to you know uh, I've got a new product that I need to to you know get the final design done on and stuff like that so so you keep it keep it simple. Awesome. So FMEA you know or PFMEA useful tool uh, for uh, risk management and then. You kind of talked through this um, truncated version, the simple version, you know, just high, medium, low probability and impact matrix um, for execution risks. Are there any other uh, useful tools that you've used, you know, that you think would benefit our listeners to, to kind of experiment with? So a specific one I've seen, but I, I haven't had a chance to use it yet. It was brought up as we were doing that, um, that, that webinar, which was the the sprint um, waterfall split, there's a, there's one from a group called I think it's AIM Institute called Minesweeper, 
and they do a good job of of organizing the assumption type risk. You know, what's what do I not know? And you know, so they've got good ways of segmenting it. And then the process, and I think this process rolls over into any risk management is everybody individually on a team rates the risks, right? And this and this tool captures all those ratings. And then you get together as a team and you see what the distribution is. And so if everybody's all on, it's a medium risk, you know, no discussion, you move forward. But if you've got somebody has got it high and somebody has got it low, that's a good point. That's a good point to understand why. And especially if you have five people on low and one guy on high, listen to that person to find out, do they know something the rest of us don't know? Snuff him yeah. out of your project plan. <laughs> yeah. Mark yeah. Eliminate, you know, eliminate this person. You know, I've, I've, I've facilitated the, uh, you know, risk management things where you're sitting there, okay, this one, high, medium, low. And there's somebody in the room who's who's very vocal and very loud. And you just have to almost, you know, you have to say, okay, we heard you. I want to hear everybody else before uh, before we put the letter in the box here on, as we do the assessment. So, so you've got to, you've got to sometimes drag the reasoning out of some folks who may be quieter and, uh, but know something that's, that the rest of the team should know. So. Yeah, and some of the uh, some of the assessment, particularly uh, if you're using valuation categories like high, medium, and low, um, there's there's a team um, calibration effect that happens, you know, within mm -hmm. the team where um, me as an individual. I don't necessarily know what the line looks like. We kind of all have to talk about it as a team. So, for example, if I were to give you a pay raise, you know, what's a good pay raise? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, a lot of that depends on how pay raises have been distributed in the past, you know, job title, uh, where you're at in the compensation uh, span for this role, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so for uh, risk assessment, you know, not probability because, you know, hopefully there's a little bit of data there, but definitely on the severity side, um, a lot of the time that kind of emerges as the team talks, uh, just because there's not often a um, objective standard, you know, to, yeah. to go back to on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in FMEA, you've got the 10 point scale, and there's a lot of good definitions of, you know, a 10 on severity is, you know, danger to life and limb, you know, and that sort of thing as you go down. So that's, that's pretty well defined. But in this, say, when you're doing project risk management and you're saying high, medium, low, yeah, it is worthwhile to get some sort of a grounding, you know, to say, okay, high will hit us and knock us six months off a of schedule, for instance. You know, medium is, you know, we're going to have to spend more money, but we can still maintain schedule. You know, low is somebody's going to have to work a couple extra hours, you know, that sort of, you know, you know, those, those sorts of, uh, you know, get some sort of scale that everybody can, can uh, nod their head and say, yeah, I think that'll work. Yeah. So uh, for our audio only listeners, this is John Tecker and Jake Harrell on a quality podcast with Mark Sneeringer, uh, CI consultant who specializes in design for Six Sigma. And we've been talking about uh, risk management. Um, particularly some ways to make it uh, more effective. Mark, we appreciate you coming on the show and the uh, time that you've given us value created for our listeners. Um, how can folks get in touch with you out there? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. So there is a LinkedIn profile out there. Um, also, um, email is, uh, is an effective way to reach me. And it's simply marksneeringer one you know, all one word at Gmail. All right. So we'll put your uh, uh, LinkedIn profile in the show notes and, yep. and your email as well. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. Is there uh, any wisdom or words of advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? I would say if you're worried about doing risk management or, you know, risk assessment, risk management, try it. And if you do, Make sure you don't just do the assessment, put it on the shelf, but actually figure out what the mitigations are and execute the mitigations.
great advice and I would just add on to that. Um, if you're stuck or don't know how to get started, uh, we've got Mark's email in the show notes below. So give him a call. Um, there's a lot of people out there that are willing to help you run your business and make it better. And that's part of what we highlight on the quality podcast. It's okay to ask for help. And there's a lot of people out here um, that can do just that for you. So Mark, appreciate you coming on the show today to all of our friends and family out there on YouTube land. 